Hello and welcome to another episode of I Love This Band. And those are words you haven't heard me say in quite a while. So yes, uh, the podcast has been on a hiatus uh, for pretty much the guts of a little over a year. Um, I think the last episode I did was actually a Christmas episode in 2020. (laughs) So I owe you two Happy New Years uh, since the last time you heard my voice. Um, Life things kind of got in the way. Um, And I've also taken on this huge project uh, to do for the next episodes. So it was just quite a lot to juggle. And I decided to hell with it. I'm going to take a break, uh, sort my life out. Uh, and make time for the podcast when I can and it's all worked out now everything's written and um, on the day I'm releasing this uh, it's Kurt Cobain's birthday so happy birthday Kurt Cobain in the great beyond so if you're new to this podcast ordinarily I would be profiling a band and then I would be speaking to somebody who loves them that's kind of the original format of the podcast um I felt like I don't think I could do Nirvana justice if I did them in the traditional way. Um, I don't know, this this project, this series, this podcast, this Nirvana special, uh, I didn't really know what it was going to be when I started writing. Um, but as the story unfolded and as I got deeper into it, I realised, holy shit, this is a series This is not one episode. This is going to be a series. So this is called I Love This Band Presents. And it's going to be six episodes long. Today's is the first episode. So I really hope you enjoy it. Um, I put so much work into this. Um, Also, I haven't podcasted in a while. So there definitely is going to be moments where I stumble over my words. Um, I hope that doesn't bother you. Um, But it is what it is. I hope you really enjoy what I have to say about Nirvana. And then before we go into any content, um, I have to go through the sources that I have for the podcast, okay? So the books that I've used are Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana by Michael Azarad. Nirvana, The True Story by Everett True. And of course, Heavier Than Heaven by Charles R. Cross. Along with uh books for sources I've also gone online and found articles for different from different publications such as Rolling Stone, um, Q Magazine, Mojo Magazine, um, some physical ones I've owned for quite a few years just from my own little teenage collection I kind of dug back up again and went through to see if I could find anything maybe I didn't notice before. Um, and then the next thing I want to go through then, of course, is the social media. So I'm on Instagram as at I love this band pod. The same for Facebook. I also have my Patreon back up after a year. It's uh, patreon.com forward slash I love this band pod. Uh, and I have two tiers now. Um, I have a tip tier for three euro. So if you just want to throw me a bit of money for a bottle of Coke or something like that. Uh, you can donate there on that tier and then I have I love this band fan which is five euro Um, and of course it's optional I don't have any exclusive content at the moment I'm just happy to be back making podcasts to be honest with you Uh, so you know any donations are completely appreciated and my god uh, thank you so much if you do but if you don't I don't mind either Uh, you can instead you could leave me a review on apple podcasts uh, 
and help uh, help support I love this band and support my work and then uh, finally just before we go into the content uh, just a little disclaimer everything on this podcast really should be considered alleged I've taken taken everything from second-hand sources. I have no connection to any of these people. I don't know them. The only people that know what happened in this story are the people that were actually there, okay? So this is not meant to disparage anybody, living or dead. Um, So that's the word of the day, people, alleged. So now that I've that out of the way, uh, I hope you enjoy the Nirvana podcast and take care of yourselves. And I'll be back soon with episode two. Where do you start with a band like Nirvana? I've been apprehensive to cover them on this podcast. A gigantuous mythology surrounds Kurt Cobain. Myth, legend and facts are all intertwined. The media voyeurism around his tragic passing hasn't really stopped. For these reasons, I have to dig deeper into Kurt. I have to tell his story. I have to find Aberdeen and I kind of have to travel there. I have to get to know him first. The humanity of Kurt has been chipped away with every piece of media released since 1994. What else is there to be said about him? Who was he really? He's portrayed as the cherubic martyr who killed the decadent shallow sleeves of Reaganite hair metal. He's the canonised patron saint of teenage angst and alienation and the protagonist of an elaborate death conspiracy. Nirvana have the distinction of being an object of almost religious devotion to their fans. Perception of Kurt as a hyper-empathetic, forward-thinking, beautiful boy of the 1990s alternative rock scene has kind of been solidified forever. Each music fan has their own deep, personal relationship with the band. Kurt had often said punk rock means freedom, the name Nirvana coming from Buddhism and meaning to achieve enlightenment, was special to him and special to his fans. Nirvana's music hasn't necessarily aged. Kurt's brand of punk rock was not traditional play-by-numbers punk rock. It wasn't like the inoffensive indie pop of the 1980s that he did have a love for. Nirvana sounds like sheer liberation. This is found somewhere deeper in the power chords themselves. Kurt's voice and delivery expressed something deep inside his soul that resonated with millions of young people. Kurt Cobain was a boy from a small town and came from a rural working class background. He was a child of two parents who rushed into marriage, a marriage that dissolved into a toxic dynamic and bitter divorce. The relationship with both his parents was strained. A narrative exists about him struggling to feel secure in his masculinity being raised around hyper-masculine family members and his lack of respect for his mother who didn't know how to handle him. I have no authority to diagnose Kurt or to get into his head, but it is evident his mental health struggles and childhood trauma 
deeply impacted the short span of adulthood. It's also documented that despite his bizarre interests and dark moods, Kurt was a kind person, a typical frustrated young person. Many will relate to the impact of small town or rural living, wanting to achieve a sense of kinship and normalcy and failing to feel fully comfortable. Many are familiar with feelings of depression, alienation and boredom. All of these little stories are retold to figure Kurt out, to somehow find out why he was the way he was and why his unhappiness seemingly consumed his soul. Kurt Cobain was part of a generation that was already consuming and aware of rock mythology, the canonization of musical personalities, and the myths that have surrounded them had by that point romanticized the idea of living fast and dying young. From reading Charles R. Cross's Heavier Than Heaven Again, I've been reminded of the contradictions in Kurt's life. The poster boy for Generation X's rebellion was keenly aware of the folklore and mythology surrounding the greats. While fame at that point as a lifestyle for those of Kurt's disposition was deeply uncool, it also represented a sense of acceptance and achievement. From what I've read, Kurt wanted fame. He wanted the recognition and he wanted to be heard even if some of the terms of that contract became difficult to live with. The city of Aberdeen, Washington is not only a setting for this story, it is also in its own way a character in the story. The city is almost sentient in a Shakespearean kind of way. Between the months of October and March, there's excessive rainfall. The city's industry is centred on timber and fishing. If this place was personified, it would kind of be a flannel-wearing bearded industry worker wearing Timberland boots. Located in Grays Harbour County, the city was founded by Samuel Benn in 1884 and named after the famous city of the same name in Scotland. For my listeners in Ireland, let me put Aberdeen into perspective a little bit. Dundalk, a town in the northeast of Ireland, has a population of around 39,000. Dublin City, our nation's capital, has about half a million people. And as of 2021, Aberdeen, Washington, has a population of a little over 16,000. This is not a big place. Cobain tourism hasn't raised its population but it has made it famous for my listeners in the uk or us just by numbers there you can kind of get the idea in the 1900s aberdeen was noted as a hotbed of vices a hot spot for brothels saloons and gambling establishments it was then known as the hellhole of the pacific and the port of missing men due to its high murder rate The timber industry continued to boom in the 70s, but mills had been closed by the end of that decade. Kurt's family lived at 1210E on 1st Street, close to the banks of the Wiska River. The neighbourhood is humble and modest, and it's kind of set against a green, wooded landscape. The climate 
matched the grey skies of Cobain's ancestral roots. Between his parents, Kurt had French, Irish and English ancestry. But the Cobain name itself originated from Carrigmore in County Tyrone. That's in Ireland. His ancestors Samuel and Letitia Cobain left the homeland in 1875. They first settled in Canada before, before settling into the state of Washington, where their famous descendant was raised. Aberdeen is less than a two-hour drive from Seattle and less than an hour from Olympia. Kurt left for Olympia in 1987 to live with his girlfriend Tracy Miranda and this is where the early stages of Nirvana kind of began and where he attempted to shed his rural small town roots. Kurt Donald Cobain was born on the 20th of February 1967 in Grays Harbour Hospital to Wendy Frydenberg and Donald Cobain. Wendy was a waitress and Don worked at a Chevron gas station as a mechanic. Kurt's family wasn't short of creative members. From what I've read anyway, his great-uncle Delbert Cobain was an Irish tenor who appeared in the 1930 film The King of Jazz. His grandmother Iris Cobain was a professional artist and she collected Norman Rockwell paintings. His beloved aunt Mary Earl was a musician who played and recorded music. She would become a pivotal figure in Kurt's creative coming of age. Kurt's childhood is documented as being full of both nourishment and joy to pain, emotional neglect and trauma. Kurt is quoted as saying that he had a happy childhood up until he was about nine years old. It was when Kurt was nine in 1976, Wendy informed Don that she wanted a divorce and Kurt experienced his reality unravel before his eyes. The trauma of his family breaking up and the after effects of this event stuck with him for many years. Serve the Servants famously contains the lyrics, that legendary divorce is such a bore, as my bones grew they did hurt, they hurt really bad. I tried hard to have a father but instead I had a dad. His father remarried Jenny Westaby and Kurt gained a half-brother in Chad Cobain, born to the couple in 1979. Wendy kind of spiralled. Kurt witnessed domestic violence at the hands of her boyfriend, leaving Wendy hospitalised with a broken arm. Witnessing these events and the split of his family left Kurt feeling a lot of resentment towards his parents and set him on a trajectory of teenage rebellion, as is the case with a lot of children in Kurt's position. Kurt's adolescent years are that of myth and legend. Kurt had often painted himself as an anti-establishment misfit, alienated by hyper-masculine energy and homophobia in a small redneck town. Kurt, once a happy, innocent kid, fascinated by cartoon illustrations and the music of the Beatles, now displayed dark moods and a deep-rooted anger his mother could not understand. In 1979, Don Cobain was granted full custody of Kurt. I spent most of my own adolescence absorbing the music of Nirvana, attempting to understand the lyrics, as many fans do, and trying to understand who he was. Quite often, teenage rebellion and mood swings are written off simply as a natural side effect of puberty. I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not psychoanalyzing anybody, 
But to me, this really dismisses a lot of pain for young people. Reading Kurt's story as an adult whose lifespan has surpassed his at this stage, it just makes me really sad. Kurt's childhood pain, trauma and lack of stability had clearly deeply scarred the man he became. Depression and self-esteem issues can't be fixed by success, relationships or money. That doesn't mean you have to be a rock star, you could live any lifestyle and be affected by all these problems. For this reason, I now feel like his vulnerability was not only exploited by the media, but also the industry. Lack of care care only meant that Kurt could spiral further rather than bounce back. Despite all that's been written, there is evidence that Kurt was liked at school. After all, he was good looking and funny. With bright blue eyes and blonde hair, he definitely stood out. He was on the wrestling team at the insistence of his father, Don. Although Kurt wasn't a sporty kid, he was actually quite good at it too. That's not, of course, to say he was a bright-eyed, well-behaved jock. Kurt always liked playing music. He was obsessed with guitar and was beginning a long love affair with punk rock. He got into the usual trouble teenagers get into when they do get into trouble, underage drinking and vandalism particularly. Again, distress, if you place yourself as a teenager in any small town or rural area, these tales are not particularly sensational. I'm sure many of my listeners have committed or been around such teenage sins. Kurt was also like a lot of teenage boys. He loved girls. He was horny. Some of Kurt's early art project involved drawing pornographic images to give to his friends. He was also desperate to lose his virginity when he was a young man. And he did to his neighbour when he was 16 after dating for a while. This was a milestone Kurt was very pleased to reach, even if their throes of passion were rudely interrupted by an Irish Wendy O'Connor. Don Cobain, like Wendy before him, became exacerbated by Kurt's rebellion and kicked him out during these troubled teen years. This period of his life, like many other times in his life, were somewhat mythologised by Kurt himself. He lived with his best friend Jesse Reed and his family for a while, and was exposed to the family's devout Christianity. Kurt would often attend services with the family and became involved in church activity. Like Black Francis of the Pixies, albeit to a slightly lesser and more crass extent, Kurt's anti-god rants became a characteristic of his lyricism and visual art. Kurt was famously caught spray-painting God is gay on a wall, and his mugshot is probably printed on a lot of t-shirts. An aged version of Christ appears crucified in the video for In Utero's heart-shaped box. The phrase God is gay, which I have interpreted as both an anti-religious statement and an ironic cut-down of homophobia, also appears at the end of the lyrics to Nevermind's Stay Away. Kurt's visual art became increasingly more disturbing. Kurt had a deep fascination with anatomy, sexual perversion and bodily functions. This aesthetic choice stayed with him up until Nirvana's last album, In Utero. Kurt's drawings became a subject of both disgust and entertainment to his fellow students and friends. The fact remained that Kurt was a talented visual artist, even though some perceived the subject matter to be in bad taste. 
The next events in the life of teenage Kurt Cobain are where I would pinpoint a rite of passage that led him to becoming Kurt Cobain the world got to meet. My timeline is scattered for this short synopsis of Kurt, but to set the scene, Kurt's first big concert experience was Sammy Hagar at the Seattle Centre Coliseum on the 29th of March 1983. It was also in 1983 Kurt met one of his punk rock heroes, that was Buzz Osborne of the Melvins. It was through Buzz and the Melvins Kurt saw Black Flag and also made a friend in Christ Novoselic. Kurt and Christ came from the same city, two punk rock misfits in a small town. They had a similar sarcastic and irreverent sense of humour and the same passion for noisy, angry music. Interestingly, they'd both gotten themselves involved with the Christian church. I'm not sure if that's been mentioned in many interviews or not. Kurt shedded his Sammy Hagar shirts to pursue a new punk rock persona. And his first concert was, of course, rewritten as Black Flag in 1984. I guess this was around the My War era, Interestingly, I've always thought the track Can't Decide from Black Flag's My War reminded me of Nirvana and maybe I was right. Like Kurt, Black Flag frontman Henry Rollins was diagnosed with hyperactivity as a child and was also prescribed the drug Ritalin. Courtney Love had said that childhood prescription drug use had contributed to Kurt's fondness for narcotics in his later life. At least that's her theory. But let's go back a bit. Let's leave Kurt for a minute. Christ Novoselic was born in Compton, California to Cristo and Maria Novoselic. His parents were immigrants originally from two different parts of Croatia. The family relocated to Washington from California in 1981. Prior to that, Christ had lived in Croatia with relatives and was still fairly in touch with his Croatian heritage. Christ had discovered punk rock while living in Croatia, so he'd gotten his punk rock education by the time his brother Robert had introduced him to a new friend, which ended up being Kurt. In 1985, Kurt became so behind in his high school classes that he'd been informed he wouldn't graduate with his class at Weatherwax High. Following this, he entered an art piece into the regional high school art show and did quite well. He was informed that if he tried harder, he might even get into art school, but his grades had already slipped to a low at this stage. Kurt dropped out of Weatherwax to then attend an alternative high school, but he still couldn't commit to schoolwork. Then he was done with school forever. No lessons. No recess. 1985 was certainly a watershed year. Kurt, ever fascinated by bodily functions and generally gross things, had made a tape called Fecal Matter. Dale Crover from the Melvins played bass and Greg Hawkinson played drums. The tape is raw, angry, and contains the same sly and dry lyricism the world would hear when Nirvana came out. 
The tape was in a way Nirvana in a sort of embryonic stage. I never took it anything more than that. Kurt, even at this young age, unlike a lot of famous musicians, had found a voice very unique to him. He had a vivid aesthetic that matched the themes of his visual art, poetry and personal story. Fecal matter, as adolescent, crass and rough as it sounds, could never be mistaken like anything else. Fecal matter can be described as its own kind of fuzzy interpretation of punk rock and kind of like a sound art piece as well. The tape's theme channeled Kurt's frustrations directly. Spank Through was allegedly about masturbation and sexual frustration. Class of 86, or a song that's sometimes known as Buffy's Pregnant, has Kurt role-playing as a typical Aberdeen jock, spewing various misogynistic and homophobic statements. Kurt's rise to fame is brought into perspective in quite a shocking way when you think, just six years after this tape, he had a music video on MTV. Fecal Matter broke up before they could ever play a gig. However, Chris Novoselic is our guide into the next stage of Kurt Cobain's life and the start of what I consider to be the Nirvana story. And I probably will jump ahead a little bit. There are many wild anecdotes in the Cross biography which can explain Kurt's state of mind as a confused young man and honestly line up with what is commonly known as teenage behaviour. I really enjoyed Heavier Than Heaven as a book, but I also take certain parts of it with a pinch of salt. I feel like the author really focused on Kurt's kind of neuroses, and I feel like too often Kurt has been portrayed as this very sad, misunderstood, um, doomed character. And I think to continue to solidify that narrative or to push that narrative really it turns him into kind of a two-dimensional character and I think that I think it was all a little bit more complicated than that and I think it's mainly brought into perspective when you think that he was 27 years old when he died this part in fact isn't scripted I just wanted to jump in at this point and kind of give my own kind of thoughts there. There's an element to the Nirvana story which stood out to me going back to it and that's the role of women who surrounded planet Nirvana, at least that's what I kind of call it now at this stage. Courtney Love of course is villainized, Wendy is the mother whom he had a very complicated relationship and then there's Tracy Miranda. Kurt struggled with the masculinity which was expected of him from his background and the nurturing and protective element from women is certainly something I hope to touch on a little bit later and also kind of examine the role of women in Kurt's life as well. It was during this period where there's a scene in Heavier Than Heaven where Shelley, Chris Novoselic's girlfriend at this point, is covering him in blankets as he had been kicked out of his friend's home and made homeless where we will start talking about the genesis of the band itself. The little baby version of Nirvana was born in Aberdeen in the first house that Kurt had rented, 
Kurt was able to afford this through a loan from his mother and Cross basically described the home as a rotting shithole. While Kurt maintained the illusion of living independently at 19 years old, Wendy still brought him food and he still came home to use her washing machine and the phone. Kurt lived with Matt Lucan of the Melvins, so he had achieved the lifestyle of a punk rock squatter. The house is described as the shack in Heavier Than Heaven. Typical to how you'd expect a 21-year-old and a 19-year-old punk rocker to live, it was a house to get drunk and high in and play music. During this period, Kurt got a job as a maintenance man at a Polynesian condominium resort, which was 25 miles away. So yes, at this stage, Kurt worked somewhat as a janitor, but cross notes, he did less cleaning and failed of the motel room amenities, kind of like a guest squatter. 1987 was kind of like Kurt's All About Eve year. He acted as a diligent understudy, kind of like the character Eve Harrington, to the Melvins Betty Davis, practicing guitar and dreaming up the possibilities of what his own band could be like. Kurt roadied for the band, part fan, part friend and student of the punk rock circuit. It was also during this time he met one of the most important women in his life up until this point. Tracy Miranda. This period is also documented in Heavier Than Heaven as quite a self-destructive time in Kurt's life. He was drinking a lot during the day and taking acid. Kurt verbalised fantasies of suicide and dying young. It's not for me to diagnose as I've mentioned before but at a human level as a young man barely in his 20s he was searching for both meaning and purpose. The dead-end jobs that acted nothing as but a means to survive did nothing to motivate Kurt to truly live. They did nothing to inspire both his happiness, nor did they stimulate any of his creative inclinations. Kurt's ambition was not only to prove himself he could do it, or to expel his vision and ideas to the world, but also seemed to be some kind of act of desperation, the only way his soul could truly survive. Going back to what a town like Aberdeen was, who the men in his family were and what drove them, this life, the life of an undereducated, low-skilled person from a lower-class background in a town where nothing happened, It was just not something Kurt could live through. Failure was not a fear. Failure was just not an option in this case. And yes, Kurt formed an array of ridiculously named bands at this time, including the Sellouts and the Stiff Woodies, and no. A beam of light did not appear behind him. The gospel was not written and the disciples did not form an orderly line. The Stiff Woodies played... To a group of teenagers who ignored them, the sellouts jammed on Creedence Clearwater revival covers, and that was really that. After Kurt had cut ties with the Melvins and his housemate Matt Lucan moved out, Kurt's friend Dylan Carlson from Olympia moved in. The pair worked together, played music, and Cross notes this is kind of like a watershed moment. Kurt had broken away from the shadow and influence of the Melvins, at least in that way. He was ready to become his own person. 
Dylan kind of symbolised this graduation of sorts. At this point, Kurt had a cool new best friend who shared his sense of humour and love for music, a beautiful girlfriend who shared his passion for punk rock and caring for animals. Life was pivoting into a more satisfying direction for Kurt and the best and still the worst was yet to come. It seemed that Kurt had kind of got some kind of an independent life together around this time. Nirvana played their first gig at a house party in a place called Raymond. This town was located just south of Aberdeen and had the same rural flavour of Aberdeen itself. The band packed into a van for a house at 17 Nussbaum Road. This, according to Heavier Than Heaven, felt below Kurt for a few reasons. It wasn't what he expected for his first gig and to a crowd of mulleted heavy metal fans to boot. The band opened with the track Downer. Downer is well known among Nirvana aficionados and it's another great example of Kurt's songwriting in its embryonic stages. It has the element of Kurt's and Nirvana's loud, quiet dynamics surreal and twisted lyrics, and unusual melodic structure. Portray sincerity, act out of loyalty, defend your free country, wish away pain, hand out lobotomies to save little families, surrealistic fantasy, bland, boring, plain. And I, if I were to really read into those lyrics, I'd find that classic element of Generation X disenfranchisement that helped Kurt connect with his audience. Kurt was at odds with normalcy and tradition. The idea of this perfect American nuclear family was the opposite of Kurt's personal experiences. Any notion of traditional masculinity were kind of lost on Kurt. He had no pride in an environment or family life that brought him profound misery and there is a contempt for all of this within his lyricism. Fuck Aberdeen, essentially. He was leaving and eventually he did. Reading about Kurt during this early period has helped me see things I didn't really think about too much before. One thing that jumped out at me from heavier than heaven is how this profound sense of shame seemed to have shaped a lot of Kurt's worldview. Shame about his family life, shame about himself, shame about Aberdeen, ain't it all a shame? Kurt had such a rich inner world and that contrasted with his town. It's something that ignited a particular kind of rage within him, maybe. He held the rednecks of his locality with contempt but understood being from a working class background with no formal education or pedigree meant that he did struggle to feel a sense of belonging for much of his life. This stood out for me reading about his time in Olympia, the place Charles R. Cross describes as one of the freakiest places west of the East Village, with an odd collection of punk rockers, artists, would-be revolutionaries, feminists and just plain weirdos. And I'm going to stop off here at Olympia for the I Love This Band Nirvana special. We're going to lift off from here for part two.